Let's take our Bibles, please, for this morning's study. We're headed to the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew, please. On Wednesdays, what we're doing is the second and the fourth Sunday of every month, we have our Bible studies. We do them at 10 a.m. We do them then again at 7 a.m., and you are all welcome to come. There's also one in the evenings for the teens, the college and career. And what we've been doing is, like this coming Wednesday, we're going to continue on. We're going verse by verse through the Sermon on the Mount. And again, we're doing it this Wednesday, and then two weeks after that, and in the morning, in the evening, the same Bible study. And one of the things that we've been going through is, as we've been talking about, is on the Sermon on the Mount, and you usually start this way. I usually ask the crowd who are there, I say, okay, what do you know about the Sermon on the Mount? And they usually start responding with some of the things that we've talked about. So let's do that. What do you know about the Sermon on the Mount? Anything that you know? It's in Matthew. It's in Matthew. <laughs> and Luke. And Luke, okay? What's that? It's given mostly to the Jews. What else do you know? It's his longest sermon that Jesus preached that's recorded. What else do you know? It's on a mount. Yes. Okay. Very good. What else do you know? Okay, it starts off with the Beatitudes. Excellent. What else? I'm sorry. It's early in his ministry. So in the first few months of his ministry, anybody remember about where in the country he's preaching? Yeah, he's up in Galilee, he's preaching that he's giving this message. And the majority of the people who come are Jews. He's very popular at this time. Why do most of the people come to hear him? It's the miracles. If you go to verse 4, or chapter 4, verse, the last few verses in chapter 5, verse verses, it talks about most people came not because of his message, but they came all over the region. They come because they wanted to see the miracles. They want to experience it. When we talk about this, most of the people that are there, as Lloyd said, they're Jewish people, so he's going to use a lot of Old Testament references. And he's going to talk about different things that they know and how they worship. In fact, this week we're starting to talk in chapter 6 about alms and prayers based on their their culture and how they did that. And in this sermon, he's talking about the kingdom. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. And the kingdom is very, very important to the Jews. It's that idea of when God sets up his kingdom here on earth. Another term that we might use for it is one of the heavens. Okay, there's several different aspects of heaven. One today, one that the kingdom will be transferred here to the earth. That'll be like heaven on earth. And so as he's going through, he's giving very practical very uh, pointed and very authoritative message uh, about this kingdom and about how people should live. In fact, the whole idea is in this practically saying if you're a kingdom citizen, if you're one who's headed for heaven, you should live a certain way here on this earth. And he's talking about how your, your kingdom living should show up, the beatitudes, all those different things that he mentions. In, and when it's all said and done, you read the last few verses of the sermon, it concludes by saying, and the people were amazed by how authoritative he was, how just very convincing he was. And one of the things that he does is he winds through, and he comes down towards the end of the sermon, and as he's preaching it, just living, he's going to talk about a variety of things, like somebody mentioned the Beatitudes at the beginning. Beatitudes basically says the path to joy. He gets into a section that we've been studying up to this point six times. He says, you have heard it say, but I said, but I say unto you. And he's not contradicting the Old Testament, but basically he's correcting the false uh, teachings that have been going on, how they've corrupted some of the ideas of the Old Testament. And so then what he does is, then he says, okay, now in worship, and that's what we're starting this week on Wednesday, how does worship look in somebody who's headed for heaven, how do they worship today? And he talks about their praying, their alms giving, their walk with God. 
And then he gets into chapter 7, and one of the things he does at the middle and the end of chapter 7, where it's that sermon moving to, he says, I want to make you to make sure, now remember, this is a big audience, lots of people, came from miracles, Jewish in background. But he says, I want to make sure that you know that one day you're going to be in the kingdom. And so he's going to really challenge them that, hey, listen, you've got you've to make sure you know that you're in the kingdom. Because not everyone that says to me in that day, Lord, Lord, will I say, enter into thy kingdom. He says, I want to respond to some by saying what? Depart from me, ye workers of, because... Yeah, and so that's where he goes with it. In fact, he's doing this because he disagrees with what the Pharisees are teaching. The Pharisees are like a lot of religious people today, a lot of churches today. The Pharisees at that time were teaching that if, if you just attend, if you do what they say, if you follow, we will be able to tell you whether you're going to get into heaven or not or into the kingdom. One of the, one of the nicknames for the Pharisees that they took to themselves was gatekeepers. They're going to be helping to choose who gets to get into heaven or into that kingdom. And so Jesus challenges, and in chapter 7, he's going to say, beware of the false teachers. Okay, you can tell a tree by its fruits. Beware of the wolves in. Yeah, and he gives all those thoughts. And then that's where he brings it down. And I'm jumping, I'm not going to be preaching from here, but in chapter 7, he basically brings them to that point where He's going to, he's, oops, I'm in the wrong, totally wrong gospel. Sorry about that. In chapter 7 of Matthew, he basically comes down, he says, therefore, whosoever hears these sayings of mine is like a wise man who built his house upon a rock. And so he's saying, you got to listen to me, you got to listen to me. And in verse 21, 22, and 23, that's where he made indication that, hey, listen, you've got to make sure you're going to heaven. Not everyone that says, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father. Many will say, Lord, Lord, have not we prophesied in thy name, cast out devils, done many wonderful works, but I will say, depart from me, I never knew you. For us today, that comes down to looking like this. Even though we go to church, even though you may you know, sing the hymns, even though you may have a Bible on your phone or on your lap, even though you may be able to quote the Ten Commandments, know the books of the Bibles, drop money in an offering plate, that doesn't mean that you have a relationship with Christ. The relationship with Christ is calling upon Him to be your Savior, making sure that you know Him and He knows you personally. It's called being born again, being brought into his family. It's that idea of no longer trusting in the religious works. I listed several of them just a moment ago. Going to church, giving, uh, knowing different things. Those are all good things, but they don't get us into heaven. Not by the works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he has saved us. It's not by works lest any man should boast. We don't get into heaven by our good looks, our good works, our good deeds. Because if we could get into heaven that way, why did Jesus come and die? Why did Jesus have to come to this earth? He came to rescue those who were sinners. He came to ransom us. What does that mean? We are sinful creatures. Even though we do good deeds at times, we still have sin nature. And the wages of our sin is death or separation from God. And so that sin has to be taken care of. It has to be covered. And it's not by the works that covers it. It's by the blood sacrifice. God had established that all the way in the Old Testament. A life for a life. And so in order to get rid of our sin, somebody either gets punished or so, we get punished, or somebody has to take our punishment for us. Well, Jesus came to this earth, took our punishment. He didn't die for the sins he had done because he had done None. He died for our sins. And so he's on that cross separated from the Father, not because he did bad, but because I did bad. You did bad. 
And he's there and suffering on the cross and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's separated from the Father, experiencing my hell, your hell. In a, in a temporary time, this eternal, infinite God was able to suffer for all of our sins for all time, separate from the Father. And when it was all done, he calls out and he says, it is, or what's it mean? Paid in full. Paid in full. I've paid for their sins. And then we have to ask him to forgive us, even though he's done it all, please apply your payment to my account. Please become my Savior. I trust in you, not my baptism, not my church deeds, not my whatever. I'm trusting in you to get me into heaven. And so he's telling this crowd, make sure you know me. Because many are going to come and say, I went to church, I cast out demons, I did this, but I'm going to say, I never knew you. You did it on your own. Have you trusted Christ as your Savior? Well, if you have, then you become a kingdom citizen. You become a child of God, you're headed for heaven, and you're supposed to act a certain way. Well, through this sermon, he talks about it. And there's one passage, and only one I want to deal with this morning quickly. It's one verse that we're going to get to on our Wednesday studies in probably several weeks from now, but it's a tremendous text. It's in chapter 7, verse 12 chapter 7, verse 12, and we're just pulling it out of that context and making this statement this morning. Jesus tells them, therefore, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. This is what the Old Testament taught. This is the teaching of the entire Old Testament. Remember the Old Testament? What is the greatest command? Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul. And the second greatest command is love thy neighbor as thyself. Well, he says, this is how you love your neighbor. And he states it, and if it's helpful to put it in, the, in my paraphrase, all things whatsoever you would that men should do to you, do even to them, for this is the law and the prophets. And as we go through and look at just that statement, we know it. We, we a lot of us, you know, do unto others as you would have them do to you. We understand it as the golden rule. Just to dissect it a little bit better this morning and just do a quick study on it, but a challenging study, can I ask and answer three questions? What was, the, what was unique about the way that Jesus stated this? Well, in, in the way that he stated it, there's some profound thoughts. And I, the whole teaching is profound, but interesting. The way that he stated this, it, it was very unusual. Very unusual for that time. Now, he's not the first one that had a similar idea. You can go through all kinds of writings and you can find that other teachers, other preachers, other philosophers of life, they stated something like this, but not the same way. In fact, do this. While I put up samples of the way it was commonly stated, try to catch how did Jesus say it different than they did. For instance, we jump back and we go all the way back to Isocrates. Do not do to others which angers you and and don't do it to them, basically. What you avoid... You know, do not afflict on others. What you do not want to be done to you, don't do to anybody else. Whatever things anyone hates to suffer, you know, don't do that. He, one writer says, as you wish that no evil befall you, so you should act on the same principle towards others. Here's one writer that says, what you yourself hate, don't do to anybody. Don't, don't, just don't do that which you don't like. What is hateful to you, do not do to somebody else. How does Jesus' statement differ from all those? Did you, did you notice? How did they state it? Yeah, theirs was all don't do. Theirs was, which is really good. I mean, it's, it's a good standard, but theirs was from a negative aspect. And, and we understand that. It makes sense. 
There we have them listed. And, and if you say, I don't like something done, okay, I don't want to be stolen, have things stolen, I shouldn't steal. I don't want to be cheated, don't, I shouldn't cheat. I, I don't want to be lied about, then I shouldn't lie. The, uh, you know, I don't want to be gossiped about, then don't gossip. We understand that. That is all good. And that is appropriate and that's proper. And we would say amen to all that. But what did Jesus do? He raised the bar much higher. He not only talked about what what included don't do these things, but what did he do? He comes from a positive aspect. He says what you want others to do to you, you do. Okay? That would include the don'ts, but also the do's. And he expanded this so much more to the crowd that he's talking to. As not only was he saying something that was unusual, something that was heightened, but he says it in a way that it is to be unending in our life. What I mean by that is this. He uses the verbiage that would have this idea, keep on doing this. What you want others to do to you, you keep on doing. You do it over and over again. In other words, it's got to become a habitual lifestyle that you in your daily walk stop and think, how would my coworker want to be treated? How would my classmate want to be treated? How would my fellow worshiper want to be treated? How would my family member want to be treated? How would my brother and sister want to be treated? And if this is to become a thought process on an everyday basis. So it's unusual. It is beyond ending. It's universal. What we mean by that is this. It includes you. The way he says this, it's very emphatic. You who want something done nice to you, you do it to somebody else. It includes everyone who's listening to him at that time. It includes every one of us who are already kingdom citizens on our way to heaven. How do we live in this world? We're to be living by this standard. All of us. Not a single one of us gets a pass because we're old or young. We're male or female. We're married or single. We're a parent, we're a child. We're, we're in ministry or we're in some other vocational area. None of us gets a pass. This is to be our type of lifestyle habitually with an uninhibited fashion. Uninhibited, what I mean by that is he says that this should be more than just thinking about. This should be more than just you know, a nice thought. This should be action. This should be a doing, a positive action. He makes it very clear. You do. Not just you think, you actually do this. You take the initiative. He doesn't put it out like this. If somebody does something nice to you, do it to them. There's, he doesn't put that out there. He says, what you would like done to you, you take the initiative to do for others. You do it uninhibitedly. You just keep on doing it. You make this a type of your, your lifestyle that you initiate good deeds towards others in your family, in your home, at your workplace. You know, now, how does that look like? What does that do? Okay. You, uh, you and I, I like it if somebody gives a hand, okay, with some chore or something. That means then I should take the initiative to give a hand towards others who are doing a chore or something. Uh, you know, you like it if somebody volunteers. You know, you have a project going. Then you volunteer. You know, how about this? You like it if somebody were to watch your kids then you take the initiative off to watch somebody else's kids so they go on a date. You, you say, okay, I like it if somebody thinks of me. You know, they, they give me something, they give me a note, they give me a, a, a little memento that they're thinking of me. I like that. Then you do it. You take the initiative to do something. You take the initiative, you know, to show an interest in other people's kids because you like it if they come up and talk to your kids. 
But you be the one that does this. You be the one. You like it when people come up and compliment you on how you look. You know, what, you, you know, what, what you've done or thanking you. Then you take the initiative that you start it that way. You do it. What about, what about just dropping a note, making a phone call? You like that if somebody contacts you. Then why don't you contact somebody? You know, we could go on. We could just talk this about. You like it if somebody invites you over to have you. Then you invite somebody. You take the initiative. You don't wait to just pay back. You do it. He's demanding this. He's calling for this. And he's saying this is to be unlimited in our lives. This is to be something that is, that is ongoing. But let me expand upon this. He says all things whatsoever. He doesn't limit it to, okay, just the way we talk. He doesn't limit it to the sense of just when we go to work. He doesn't limit it to just when we go to church. It is unlimited in this sense that you take the initiative for compliments, speech, praying, just you name it. You name it. Every aspect of our life, every activity of our life, we take the initiative when we do this. It's unlimited when. We've already said it's unending. It's just, you, you just do this. Where we do this, how much we do this. Okay, oh, I, I, I was like that last week. I lived that way last week. This week I'm off. No, no, we don't, we don't get off our citizenship. He says, okay, I, I'll do that at church. I'll do that at, at work, but not at my house. I'm not going to do good to my siblings. You know, they don't deserve it. They probably don't, okay? But that's not how we're supposed to operate. We're supposed to do this in an unlimited fashion. In other words, this is to characterize you. Does it? Does this become the way people would describe you? You are a do-gooder. I know in our society that's got a bad connotation anymore. But really in our Christian realm, this is what we should have. We should be characterized as being doing good deeds. Going about and doing good like Jesus. In fact, let's add to it. This is to be unconditional. I've already alluded to it, okay, that somebody may not deserve it, but should I, can I expand upon that? Go to Luke 6. You didn't mention that it's in the Gospel of Matthew, which it is, but he preached the very similar or same message in Luke 6. Some say it's, the, it's Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount. Others will say, no, it's the same, same thing but different in that it's called the Sermon on the Plain is where he preached it in Luke chapter 6. So if it's, that's the case, then he's preaching the same message and some of the same ideas on more than one occasion, which wouldn't surprise us. Okay, that happens. But in Luke chapter 6, it's expanded upon a little bit more, which is more interesting how he does this in Luke chapter 6. As he's speaking, he, let's jump down to verse 30. Give to every man that asks of thee, and of him that takes away thy goods, ask them not again. And then he makes the statement. As you would that men should do to you, do you also to them likewise. For if you love them which love you, what thank of you? For sinners also love those that love them. If you do good to them which do good to you, what good is it? What thank have you? For sinners also do even the same. If you lend to them which you have hope to receive or to pay back, what thank of you? For sinners also lend to sinners to receive as much again, but he, now he raises the standard. I want you to do good to who? Who does he start mentioning in verse 35? Your enemies do good. Those who can't pay you back, you do good. Your reward shall be great and you shall be the children of the highest for he is kind of the unthankful. In other words, what he's asking us to do is people that we may not know. 
people that, that don't like us. Maybe even people we don't like. He's telling us that we should do good to people who won't do us good back. Oh, now that's a tough one. I will do good as long as they reciprocate. That's not what he called for. He says, you and I who are citizens of the kingdom, we're not supposed to be basing this on the condition that I get something out of it. I'm supposed to initiate good even to those who won't or can't do good back to me. He makes it clear. He says, okay, we are supposed to be doing kind deeds, good gestures, you know, spiritual labors towards others without expecting reciprocation. That's why, you know, you and I have to ask ourselves some questions. Okay, what about the people we don't like? What about the people we don't know? What about the people who treat me poorly? So I start asking, okay, do you speak of them the way you want them to speak of you? They've ripped you know, they've ripped you apart. Do you still speak of them the way they, you wish they would speak of you? Uh, they've treated you kindly. Do you reach out to them the way you want them to reach out? They've offended you. They, they really did you wrong. You wish they would come and reconcile the situation. According to this text, what should you do? You wish they would come and reconcile? What should you do? You should go and reconcile. You should be the uninhibited one. You should be the one that says, okay, this is what I'm supposed to do. Okay, to resolve the conflict. Okay? You, you wish that people who didn't like you or didn't know you would give you the benefit of the doubt. They don't know your circumstances. They don't know you had a car breakdown. They don't know you had a kid breakdown. They don't know what happened, that you didn't arrive on time. Okay? And you wish they'd give you the benefit of the doubt. Then what should you do? Give others the benefit of the doubt. You know, the idea here is that you and I should not limit our gestures of kindness to those who can reciprocate. We, we need more like Chad. Chad was this little kid who was, you know, he was by the standards of other kids that were in that first grade, he was strange, okay? He just by his conduct, his actions, and so it came out that the kids in the neighborhood, they wouldn't play with Chad. They would tease him, they would invite him, and then ditch him. But they really didn't have anything to do with it. So it's approaching Valentine's Day and Chad got it in his mind that he wanted to do Valentine's cards to all the kids in his class. So he asked his mom, Mom, would you go and get the stuff and please help me and I'm going to make cards for all 30-some kids in my class. She didn't want him to because in her mind, she knew that his, he had struggles with social skills and she knew that probably the kids in the class, not a single one would give him a card and he would be devastated. So she tried talking him out of it. He was insistent. Absolutely insistent. So she got the stuff and they started a couple weeks beforehand. They were making all the cards for all the kids in the class. The day came, he jumped out of bed all excited that he's going to get his, his book bag packed and ran out the door, got to the, bu- the school bus down at the end of the street. And even as he went, his mom's thinking, this is going to be a disaster. He's going to be so discouraged at the end of the day. And the other kids that were walking, they did the same thing. As they approached the bus, they wanted nothing to do with him. He gets on the bus and she's thinking as the day is going and praying and saying, God, please help Chad. He's going to be so hard broken. He's going to be so disappointed. So I'll make him some of his special cookies. Chocolate chips with M&M's. So she made him up. He had the batch of cookies and the bus comes at the end of the day and here he comes. You know, as usual, he's the last kid off the bus and as he's walking, she said he's walking along far behind the other kids and he's got a little bit of a, you know, quicker step than normal, just real purposeful and she's thinking, ah, oh, he's going to get in the door and that's when he's going to crash. 
He's going to open the door and just break into tears. And the door opens, and he comes in, closes the door, and she looks at him. She says, how was your day? It was so good. Not a one. Not a single one. Not a single person. And she's thinking, he's excited. Not a single person. Didn't give him a card. He says, I didn't forget a single kid in my class. He never got a card. But he was all excited about giving rather than getting. That one characterized most of us. That's not the way most of us would respond. Most of us, we want to be given to us attention, compliments, time. But we, you know, we get upset if others don't give it. But do we give it? Something else that strikes me about the way that the Lord said it is to be unequaled. What I mean by that is this. In the Luke passage, he makes this comment, sinners do this. Sinners, people as a whole, is what he's talking about. People as a whole, they, they, they do nice to their friends. They invite their friends over. They lend to their friends. They, they, they do good to their friends. But he's saying, so what? So what? You as my children, you should do better than the world. You you should be unequaled compared to the world. You should do so much more than what is the norm in our society. You should be excelling above what the other co-workers do. You should be excelling above what the others in, in paying attention and assisting do. You should be living at a higher standard of doing, of doing for others. And so you look at it and go, wait a minute, Wait a minute, then then I'm supposed to be making an impact at work by living at a higher standard than the co-workers when it comes to assisting one another, complimenting the others. I'm supposed to, my family, we're to have a higher standard of doing good to one another than the neighbors next door. I at school should be doing good to the other classmates more than the others. I, I, I at school then, what you're saying is that I should be welcoming strangers, kids that, that are new there, to church, to school, to the team. I should be doing it more than the others on the team? Yeah. That's what he's saying. You should be a step ahead of the others. The quicker, the faster one. When your family, when your family, all, you know, every family's got at least one of them. Do you know what I mean by that? Every family has at least one weird person in their family. Okay? Everybody's got somebody. My family has me. Okay, so every, everybody's got one. That the other family members would just as soon... We'll invite them, but we pray they don't come. Uh, type thing. You should be the one that says, I'm not going to treat them that way. I'm going to go above and beyond what the others do. You should be the type of person that you set a standard of. You're the one that's the first one welcoming, even as a teen, showing an interest in the others. You should be the one, whether it be at school, wherever. You're going you're gonna to be the first one to often lend a hand to help in some small thing, in some small big way. You're the one that people don't come and gossip to. The reason they don't come and gossip to you is because they know you're the one that doesn't like gossip about yourself, you aren't going to gossip about others. And you'll cut them off at the legs if they start gossiping. So they don't even come to you. They don't even try anymore because you're the exceptional one. 
You're the one that had here in this deal, when, when people are looking for somebody to do a project, they're looking for somebody who is, you know, that they can depend upon, you're the one that's going to show up. You're the one that really does keep your word, and you'll even go the extra mile without complaining. You might even stay a little bit later at work without, with giving a hand to get things wrapped up. You're the one. You're that type of person that they can rely on, they can count on. You're going to be unequaled in that regard. So, okay, we said, how does that, what did Jesus mean? Here's a good question. What does that look like in every day? We, we've already said several of those. But taking the words of Jesus, it means you're the greeter. You salute others. You welcome others more than the typical. It means that you assist others quicker than others will assist. It means that you will show mercy where others don't want to show mercy. It means that you're the person who is quick to forgive. If the others in the family and the relatives, they don't want to forgive, but you will forgive. It means that you're the one that you will serve instead of waiting to be served. You take the initiative to care for others, to serve others. You're the type of person that you're not vengeful. You don't want somebody to be vengeful to you. You won't be vengeful. Instead, you're going to somebody who's hurt you. You will heap coals of fire upon their head. You will do this quicker than others. You're the one that will speak graciously to others. You don't like it at home when somebody rips on you. You don't rip on them. You don't like it when somebody calls you names. You won't call them names. You know which people you can tease, and and it's fine. But you know there's some people you can't tease, and you're not going to go there. You're going to be careful with that. You're the type of person that you don't like it when people get in your business. You're staying out of other people's business. That's the way you're going, to write, you're going to respond. You're going to set that rule. You don't like it if you do wrong. You wouldn't like it if my, myself or somebody came come and say, you're a bum. How could you do that? You would appreciate, even if you've done it wrong, you would appreciate somebody coming with compassion and kindness and gentleness to reset the bones spiritually. That's what Galatians talks about. You want that type of care and consideration, you're going to give it including to your kids or your spouse. You're going to be that type of cautious, gracious, compassionate, humble spirit. Now, if I were to expand upon that and say, okay, how would that look here? Okay. You want, when you bring a visitor, you want the rest of us to welcome that visitor, and rightfully so. You want us to make them feel at home. Then what do you do when others bring visitors? You, you want others to teach your kids in Calvary clubs, in Sunday school, in junior church. You like it that there are so many good teachers. Then what about you teaching as well? You, you like it when people come up and talk to you and just, you know, say, how are you doing? You know, you come in, you sit in your pew, and some people might say, why don't you turn to others and initiate conversations? You know, here it goes. You like it when people, you sing, you serve, you play the piano, you, you, you do something here. You, you're in the nursery. You like it when the parents come and say, thank you very much for taking the time to serve us. You really, that was a blessing to our hearts that we didn't have to watch our kids for two hours. Thank you. You like that when they do that. Do you do that? Do you, are you the one that you would say, and we have people that will call and say, hey, can somebody visit my elderly relative? Sure. That's part of our ministry. 
why don't you visit somebody as elderly relative? You know, you, you want people to follow through on their commitments. I want people to follow through. I want myself to follow through on commitments. You know, somebody makes the commitment that says, okay, I'm going to show up and help. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be there because we're doing a project, we're doing a ministry, we're doing something. I understand when there's illness, there's difficult, th that's no problem. But when people just don't show up, you know, when, when somebody says, hey, we're going to co-teach here, we're going to do a lesson, you, want, you like it when they show up with their portion of the lesson. You, you know, you like it when people show up on time. Then you, when you commit to a ministry, you should follow through. Then you, when you say, I'm going to help with a lesson, you should prepare that lesson and show up at the time when it's supposed to be done. We could go on and on and make some practical applications, but let's do it this way. Let's have you do the application. You think right now, what would you like about some family member, some church member, some coworker? What is it that you like them to do to or for you? In your mind or on your paper, write it down. Go ahead, write something. Have something. This is what I appreciate. I appreciate it. And don't, let's be realistic. I appreciate if somebody paid off my mortgage. That, that, that's not realistic. Okay, that, that's, that, let's not be silly. Yeah, I would appreciate it if they get, made me their heir to a million dollars. Okay. That, that's being simple and realistic. Day, day by day. I like it when. Okay. I like it when they are mannerly towards me. I like it when they say thank you for what I've done. I like it when they lend a hand. I like it. Okay, you got something? You know, whether it be your sibling, your spouse, you got something in mind or written down? Then the question has to be, okay, I use the illustration, you know, I like it when somebody gives me a love note. Then the question has to be, have I done it? Are you going to do it this week? And we could expand upon that and say, whatever you wrote down, maybe you wrote down, I like it when somebody gives me a hand with a project. Well, what are you going to do this week? How are you going to practice this? Some of you might say, I like it when people pray for me. You know, I like it when people send me a note of encouragement. Then how about you doing it? Why wouldn't you sign up and adopt a missionary? Well, because they might not write me back. Well, in all reality, they probably won't. Just because their schedules and so many people might be writing. But if that's why you're doing good to get back, then you're not following the words of Christ. If you like people to pray for you, if you like people to encourage you, then sign up and do it. This is the last day to do it. Sign up for Adopt a Missionary and do it. Be a blessing. Practice what Jesus said, doing good unto others. We close with this. Why should we live this way? There's just three simple reasons in the text. They are very simple. They're, they're clearly in here. I'm still in the Luke text where, he say, where we know that Jesus commanded it, both in Matthew and in Luke. It's a verbal command. It's an imperative. Do unto others. Not a suggestion. It's a command. So it's required by Christ. Second reason is it's rewarded your reward shall be great. 
God will reward you, repay you some way. I'm not doing it to get back from you, but some way, some shape, God will compliment, God will commend, God will take care of, of a reward in my regard if I'm practicing this. Leave it up to God. may not be from you. That's okay. It's going to be from God. There's a third reason. You reflect God. The reason I say that is where he makes this comment as he's talking, and he says, he says that you shall be the children of the highest at the end of verse 35. He is kind unto the unthankful and to the evil. That, that's like saying you look like your, your kids look like you. You look like the Father in heaven. And God himself is kind and does good to people who don't deserve it, you and me. And so we're reflecting God. We're like, the, we're like the moon reflecting the sunlight. We're reflecting Godness to others, God-likeness. And by their good works, he says that many will then come to be able to glorify his name, Matthew 6, when he's talking about the light of the world, when he's talking about the salt of the earth. Some of those deeds, those, those impacts, will draw others to want to have what you have, the kingdom citizenship that we talked about. The idea is you'll be more like God. But it's so hard. Too often we're like this family that you've heard about the, wooden, the moral of the wooden bowl. You've heard the story before. The story is about a family. There's a mom and a dad, and they have a boy about five years old. And the dad's dad is elderly, and they have to bring him into, his, into their home. They bring him into the home because he's becoming frail and feeble, can't live by himself. And what happens is because he's frail and feeble that at times he drops things. Things break. At times at the meal, he he can't get the spoon up quick enough that basically it scatters and it's soiling the tablecloth. When he drinks, he drools. And so he's becoming a mess. And sometimes he drops the platter. And sometimes the old man eats loudly. And so the parents are getting frustrated They're watching Grandpa becoming like this, and that irritates them. They're trying to teach their little boy manners, and he doesn't have the same manners, and they're trying to teach him to be their little boy to be careful, and and Grandpa's being a slob. And so their words are becoming harsher and harsher. And finally, Dad decides what we need to do is get Grandpa away from the table where he can't soil anything, can't break anything, so they put a small table to the corner. And by this small table, there's nothing that can get soiled or stained except for the floor. They give him a wooden bowl so he doesn't break it anymore. They give him a wooden cup so he doesn't break it anymore. And they leave him there whenever they have a meal. That's where Grandpa has to sit by himself. The little boy is watching all this. He's seeing how his parents respond. He's seeing how they talk about Grandpa. He sees how they put Grandpa by his, not a kid's table, but the Grandpa table. And he's over there, and the little boy notices that most every meal now, when Grandpa sits down, he looks over towards them, and he's got tears going down his cheek. And so the little boy one day, after a few days of this goes by, the little boy is sitting there in the living room area, and he's working with some wood stuff. You know, he's got a little whittling knife that they gave him, and he's working on it, and Dad says, hey, son, what you doing? He says, I'm whittling a bowl. What are you whittling a bowl for? I'm whittling it for you when you get old. And dad's stunned. Out of the mouth of babes, right? And dad and mom look at each other and they realize they've done wrong. They've done so much wrong. 
the relationship, there's far more important things than a spill. It's the relationship. There's far more important things in life than a broken bowl. A, you know, it's a relationship. So that evening, dad and mom both escort grandpa from his chair in the other room to the table. And from then on, he ate with them. Didn't take away the spills, didn't take away the drooling, didn't take away, you know, the tablecloth getting soiled. But he was okay. They had learned from their son a lesson. Do unto others as you would have them do to you. It's a practical lesson that can apply to all different phases of our life. It's the bottom line is, this is living like Christ, who went about doing good. So I ask you as we close, are you like Christ in this regard? Will you live like Christ? Will you be Christ-like? Maybe you're here this morning and this whole doing good is secondary to this thought. Are you sure you're going to heaven? Do you have kingdom citizenship, heavenly citizenship? You've got to make a reservation by calling upon Christ. Today is the day of salvation. So in a moment, we're going to sing a song. When we sing that song, we're going to invite you, if you'd like, we're going to have some of our staff go to that door right over there. And they're going to be there. They have their Bibles. They're going to be willing to show you, take you down the hall to a private room and show you the prayer you need to pray to make sure you're on your way to heaven. The majority of you, I, we've done that sometime in our life. But our question this morning is, will we live like Jesus? Will we truly live in a way that we're going to do what he wants us to do? Living for him, living like him. As we close the service, let's pray in song, offering, giving to our, the Lord our lives. If you'd like to talk to somebody for counsel, feel free to do that as we sing.